There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Hello, I'm Chris Meek. You tune in this week's episode of Next Steps Forward. As always, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Our guest today is Dr. Paula Cecchi Demeglio, author of Diversity Dividend, The Transformational Power of Small Changes to Debias Your Company, Attract Diverse Talent, Manage Everyone Better, and Make More Money. A data scientist and lawyer, Paula holds double appointments at Harvard, at the Kennedy School of Government, and the Law School. Dr. Cecchi Demeglio is a prominent scholar and researcher known for her work in the fields of law, management, and organizational behavior, with a particular focus on promoting diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace. She has made significant contributions to understanding issues related to gender equality, diversity, and inclusion in the workplace. Paula has also conducted research on the role of empathy in emotional intelligence and leadership effectiveness, as well as on the importance of inclusive leadership practices to foster innovation and productivity in organizations. Dr. Paula Cecchi Demeglio, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Hi, Chris. Thank you for having me and happy to have all the listeners with us today. No, I appreciate your time. Uh, given that intro and that bio, you're clearly a very busy person. So I really am, am thankful for you being here today. So Paula, let's start. How did you become interested in diversity, equity, and inclusion? And why did you decide to make it the focus of your career? Well, uh, you know, I'm a first generation uh, American and I'm very proud of that. Um, the notion of my career was initially I was a lawyer and everyone will tell you my path was straightforward and I should just do that. But I realized that our system um, may carry some inequality and that is part of the reason why I switched uh, complement my degree, went back to school uh, to understand that the power is in the data. The power is the ability to argument, but also demonstrate uh, your point of view. And so, you know, what a better job I have to show that our diversity is the strength of any country, including yours. It's yours now too. You said you're first generation. Yeah, very proud of it. <laughs> What are the most common types of bias that exist in, in workplace environments and how they manifest in day-to-day -day operations? So biases are everywhere, right? We should not forget we made roughly more than 10,000 uh, decisions a day. So by just having a name or a perception of someone high gender, race, or ethnicity, we may have some assumption kicking in. I do think um, objectively people are not biased because they wake up the morning and they say, oh, I want to be biased. I do think that everyone want to say, I want to make smart decision, help me make better decision. And so the question become to equip people at every level to make decisions who are aligned with who they are on a daily basis, meaning uh, individuals who like to make smart decisions. How bias uh, manifests for example, just behind you, you have, you know, some frame of a map. I may think directly you love to 
to go on the sea. You probably own a boat. Uh, you had a New York cup. I may think you're living in New York. And all of that will bring assumption about me. Oh, maybe he's going to Cape Cod in the summer. Maybe he likes beer. Maybe he doesn't like the Patriots. And all of that will be brought into the conversation if I don't pay attention to it. So biases are just everywhere because they are cues that help us make faster decisions. Uh, and sometimes they are not aligned with what we want in the long term. That's amazing. I wouldn't think of something as simple as looking at what's behind me or my you know, beloved Yankees coffee mug here. Uh, for the record, my, my listeners know that I'm a huge sports fan and I do not like the Patriots. Uh, but I'm actually also impressed that you, you know like the week of Cape Cod on vacation. That was pretty funny. So it's like you're, you're reading my mind as well. You mean that I'm good at my job, maybe? You're exceptionally good. <laughs> we just started. So, Paula, how important is it for companies to incorporate diversity, equity, inclusion principles into their organizational policies and policies and practices to address bias effectively? You know, I think if we look uh, very from an economic standpoint, um, we need to think where innovation comes from. And what are the drivers of an economy? And any economy will tell you we need to pour innovation. We need to create because we are living at a pace of technology that nothing has been seen in the past. And being able to solve problems means that we need to bring people from different experience, different background, different, you know, just area of life to solve problems that one may not have encountered. And I will give you a very simple example. You may not think that the difference between gender matter, but the way, for example, a kitchen is set up, the high matter tremendously. Um, and as such, if you don't have someone who may be from a different um, high, you may not think that we need a stool to be, do that, to be able to reach the top shelf. And so from every angle, you will need to have problem being solved by various people. That's where I think the core is. From an economic standpoint, we need to solve more problems that we know exist. And that's where um, you know, the premises of my work um, is at the core of it. You've talked about we need to invest. We've talked about data. We're going to get into AI later. And so it's, it's like you read my script in advance. So I, I love this. In your research, have you found either empirically or anecdotally that American businesses tend to gravitate more to one type of diversity or another, say, for example, gender or racial or LGBTQ, and does it vary by geographic region, industry, or other factors? So that's a fair question, uh, because the answer is not the same, right? Depending on how you're looking at it, um, we are a very large country, uh, and every state also have, you know, I will say we have the federal rule behind it of moving the social movement behind it. But overall, every state are taking some advancement more further than the others uh, towards certain type of diversity, as we like to call it. I will say that overall, what has been the most advanced uh, in the last uh, decade is the conversation around gender. Ethnicity and race and religion have been brought more recently into the table over, I will say, the large audience and public. And LGBTQ plus minus as well uh, also have been on the cover since um, 
you know, decision of the Supreme Court have uh, been landing there. So I will say overall, there is a movement of the conversation, depending on where you're sitting, you don't have the same uh, noise, uh, I will say, about the topic. However, I should say that not every industry also, uh, depending on the economic sector in which we are looking at in the United States, are having the same type of conversation. For example, in New York, uh, a law just passed about the need of non-discrimination related to high um, and weight, uh, something that other states have not included. And a slightly different question, do most American businesses do better at racial diversity, gender diversity, or other types of diversity? And again, does it vary by sector or region? Definitely vary by sector and region. Uh, I think you know my answer here. If you look, for example, um, the gig economy here, you may look at, and when I say gig economy, let me uh, just make sure that we are talking about the same thing. No promotion for any company, but any type of Uber, Lyft, um, any delivering uh, company are part of the gig economy among others. Here we see um, a larger proportion of diverse employees um, who are coming from different economic backgrounds compared to just a profession that you know I'm part of. The legal profession is still very white Caucasian, male-oriented, despite having trying over the last 40 years to bring more women and more underrepresented individuals into this profession. So there is a big difference also that we can observe uh, by sector and per region. I'll say with like maybe the last 10 years, we've seen major corporations uh, create what are called employee resource groups. So there could be one veteran focused, one Hispanic focused, one LGBTQ plus, et cetera. Do you think that they're doing it just as a knee jerk reaction? Do they think they're their heart and their interests are in the right place? Is it because the employees are asking for it? And do they need to do more than just create the resource groups? Do we have more than an hour? <laughs> <laughs> We're happy to have you back too. <laughs> um, you know, I think any corporation uh, have, and I, I never met any CEO telling me, you know, I don't want to be innovative. I don't want to be competitive. Uh, the opposite is, what? how can I make my company more competitive and make more revenue to make sure that my shareholders are happy? And as such, one of the key elements, you know, that um, has been around was the creation of those resource groups. Those resource groups are, I will say, at the core of any organization, but they are no more than group of interest altogether um, being brought to discuss sometimes topic who may be difficult. I do think, uh, you know, resource group have been uh, part of cooperation, especially in Europe for a very long time, longer than they have been in the United States. And this is something that we have found from a research wise have demonstrated that is actually helpful to organization. Are they sufficient? I will tell you, no. Uh, more have to be done because um, all processes in organization uh, are not optimized to help us as a humankind make the best decision for ourselves and for the organization. And based on your experience, what are the primary challenges the organizations face when attempting to address bias? The first one is to tell people you are biased. 
you know, um, I don't know anyone, as I said earlier, on who wake up and say, I'm proud to be biased. Uh, but I do know everyone who say, I'm happy. Tell me how I can make a better decision today. Empower me. Help me being a better person. That I do know. And so I think, you know, you need to change the, the conversation and where you are bringing people onto uh, the conversation to make sure that they are staying with you. Um, that's the reason why I don't like to talk about DNI. I like to talk about decision intelligence. How can we make better decisions together? Be smart as a group to outperform the rest, right? Uh, and be a good team. You know, everyone want to win. Uh, Patriot, Yankee, we all love each other, but we all are playing a hard game at the end of the season, right? Um, and the question is, if you look simply at the NFL, every player want to play a better game the day after. That's pretty much what every individual want to do every day. Decision intelligence. I've never heard that before. I love that phrase. I love that. What data supports the idea that having more people from underrepresented groups in an organization creates financial benefits? So here I want to pause because I think, you know, um, it's easy to go and make a very shortcut of more diverse will bring you automatically more money. There is no causation. I, I mean, you know, from a science perspective, I think it's very important to pose here. What we observe is a correlation, meaning that in organizations who are more diverse, we observe that those companies generate more revenue. So there is a link here, similar than if you drink more milk, you may be taller than if you don't drink milk, right? That's where um, the conversation is about causation and, and uh, correlation. But if you think about a very simple principle, happy people make more money for themselves and their company. When you are happy at work, you're going to perform well. You're going to give 100% of yourself to play every day with your coworker to make sure that your task is done. You're going to go above and beyond. As such, your quality of what you will bring to work will increase the revenue. And that's where the secret lies. That's where the core of the recipe of success is, making people happy at work. Novel idea, right? Being happy at work. Who would have thought? <laughs> we are spending way too much time at work. Why <laughs> not being happy there? <laughs> Paolo, what can and should companies do to attract more diverse applicants? And are things that a company should not do? Very simple things, um, you know, to, to think is, what can I do um, outside of my comfort zone? And as such, you know, the ability, for example, to meet where um, candidate employee, potential employee may be. So, for example, thinking outside of the boundary of one state, thinking about way of reaching to those individuals who may not know that those type of jobs are, you know, able for them to access. And I'm thinking here in particular with a, a company, a tech company that I have worked and we have worked together in raising the number of engineers coming in that company. Initially, a lot of people didn't think when they were joining that company that one day they could become engineer and that the company could help them to become engineer and as such increase revenue for themselves, but also for their future generation and children and you know helping everybody around. One element was to be able to do an outreach 
um, via different uh, zip code uh, where those individuals suddenly see that it was possible for them. And I will say here, it's tangled with something uh, that everyone knows. If you don't see it, you can believe it. We could never believe that the Patriot will win so many times, yet we did. Uh, I may have to kick you off the show for that one. <laughs> Do you have some tips for removing implicit bias during the interviewing process? The first one I will say is knowing when do you do those interviews. Uh, you have to think that when we are making decisions about a candidate, for example, uh, before lunch, we may see that candidate uh, with different type of skill than if we see it after lunch. So knowing and being aware when those decisions are made, I think are extremely important and what is the environment around us. In terms of candidate, what can they do to help the person, you know, see them in the right way? One very simple element is to send a thank you note after the interview. I promise you that nudge will bring you a long way. Why? Because you may see many candidates, but you will always remember someone who says thank you, even if you do not hire them. Along the way, you know, maybe six months, one year down the road, you say, hey, I remember this person. It was not the right fit for that role, yet he was meeting the culture that I want to instill in my team. Let's call him back. Let's call her back. You have an entire chapter about onboarding. Why is onboarding so crucial to increasing diversity and how can we do it better? You know, Chris, I'm going to ask you, do you know any good company who onboard people and that around you tell you, oh, I had an amazing experience about joining this company? Generally speaking, what you're going to hear is excitement the first few weeks and then, oh, my God, I'm left alone. What do I need to do? Who do I need to reach? What is happening? Nobody is helping me to do to succeed in this job. And so the onboarding is essential, right? It's the ability to set up the right element for you to be successful in the short term and in the long term. And despite thinking that, you know, just four weeks or even a day is enough, that's a mistake. A good onboarding takes up to 18 months. 18 months? Yeah. Wow. I would have never thought that. I think That's of onboarding is, is the first week where you fill out your benefits <laughs> and you get your laptop and your, your photo for your ID. Okay. That's good to know. So even after a person in an underrepresented group has been with a company for a while, they still need support and encouragement. Explain the importance of things like mentorship and sponsorship. Well, here I will reframe it if you may uh, accept that as a lawyer, uh, you know, it's not any, um, it's not woman or underrepresented who may need help along the way. I think it's every type of employee who need help along the way to know what are the type of information they are looking and for them to be successful because within a week, within a month, within six months, within 12 months, your network within the organization is not the same. The type of information for you to be successful in achieving the outcome of I will say the project for the organization is not the same and is not evaluated the same. And as such, being able to have, I will say, the right coach coming and giving you direction at the right moment for you to play the next game better, that's where good onboarding, good training 
of your employee has to come. You know, I think the workplace is like a game. You need to play a chess, but you also need to know that you want to win the season. In your book, you say, quote, women people of color have histories of being compelled to perform drudge work. You also say that grunt work, quote, usually yields little currency when it comes to promotion. Yet they're seen as not being a team player if they refuse to do it. So what should someone do if they find themselves repeatedly expected or directed to do menial tasks? Whatever is their gender or ethnicity, um, if you find yourself, um, you know, in position where you feel that all the work you are doing is not equal to somebody else in your team, you know, the ability to bring into a team meeting and say, hey, I do think it will be great if around those activities we could all roll over and have the opportunity to learn, right? Because if suddenly I know what a quarterback is doing, and as such someone who is doing always the same thing, I may learn how I may help it. That's number one. And number two, you may also realize that maybe someone is in a position over and over, despite them being useful, but there is a need here to pass the ball to other players. And so, you know, I'm using a lot of analogy with sport because I believe that this is a way to communicate on how we want to make sure that employee perform in a, in a company. We don't mind sports analogies here. Just team references. <laughs> How should performance evaluations be conducted and what measures should be put in place to prevent bias from influencing assessment outcomes? Or in other words, should every employee be measured by the exact same standards and metrics or do diversity and inclusion mean we measure people differently? Ooh, here, uh, I will pause because I do think everybody has to be measured in the same way. Uh, measure and metrics are extremely important. What is for me challenging is if you create a double standard, that's where the problem is, right? Making sure that everybody is going through the same hoops, yeah, go for it. And I will encourage everyone to score individual over, you know, seven lists of criteria, depending on the job level again, because when you're junior, we are not expecting you to do the same thing that when you're senior or leader, but, or an aspiring leader. But what is important is to have a framework that you apply consistently across every department to make sure that you are able to assess an individual, I will say not just once a year, but on a regular basis. You know, it should not become a surprise when you have a performance review with your supervisor that you have not been performing well. You should have received hints along the way that something did not work out. And I think here it's two sides of the equation. One is on the employee to make sure that he's able to look back on a regular basis with his manager telling, hey, well, I am on the right track compared to where you're going to assess me on the quarterly or on the annual basis. And what are those reference criteria that you're going to be measuring me with? Is it, you know, quality of the product? And as such, if quality of the product is a metric that is used to assess employee, then make sure that you look back at the end of every project. What do you think of the quality of my work? If you have to rate it right now, one to five, please give me a response. And as such, the employee can later on go back just prior to the annual performance review and say, hey, look, quality is one element where you're going to assess all the employee. Here is 
of the various projects, you told me that my quality in this project was a three, in this one it was a five. Overall, we end up to have a four. You have done two things. You have helped your reviewer remember what you have worked along the way and what was the quality. And you have shown in the same time that you're caring about being measured in a fair way. How did the COVID-19 pandemic make inclusivity even more of a challenge and has it taught us anything about the importance of flexibility? COVID-19, I think, is um, still in a rear, and we are still, uh, you know, um, everyone can still remember very vividly what it looks like. It brought suddenly overnight the world being able to work remotely. You know, a lot of people right now are um, expressing their disconcern about going back to the office. However, uh, you know, despite me saying it is important and demonstrating that flexibility is a plus, I also found in my work that it is important for worker to go back to work, to go back to the office. So the flexibility is the ability, I will say, not to be to work five days at work, but being able to have enough time to collaborate, to spark that innovation with coworker, and also being able to be at home and work at a different pace. Because we should not forget, working at home doesn't mean that you do not work. It means that you work at a different pace, and sometimes, oftentimes, the quality of your work, because there is no disturbance, you are able to produce better quality than if you were going to the office. So finding the right balance in the flexibility of employer of corporate America is essential today, especially post-pandemic. Uh, I'm thinking back to the COVID days when I was working remotely and I built a little, I call it my basement bunker. So it was my desk downstairs in the basement. And because there's nothing else to do after dinner, I go back to work. And I can't tell you the number of times my wife came down and found me asleep at my desk at 1130 midnight, one o'clock in the morning. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's totally changed. And like you said, it's not that far in the rearview mirror that we don't remember, unfortunately, every second of it. Paula, is it up to leadership to increase diversity in the workplace or do entry-level employees and folks in middle management also have a role? I think everyone has a role. Um, I think, you know, leader, but also uh, junior joining the company, bring diverse talent or foster diverse talent is the responsibility of everyone for the survival of the company. Earlier in the show, you talked about data. How do you think artificial intelligence or AI will impact diversity, equity, inclusion in the workplace? So here is my sweet spot. Data, AI, you know, gender and race um, and performance at work. Um, you know, I, my, I remember very vividly one of my first article on AI was back 2011. And I remember at that time people telling me, you are crazy. This is something so far away. And I said, this is just around the corner. I promise you, this is a very powerful tool. And one of the elements along, you know, the last 15 years that I have been uh, working and using as a tool with company is AI. So AI became more prominent into the everyday language, but AI is everywhere. And I do think, um, and I'm thinking about one particular tool on annual performance review, which is called IDEA, uh, Inclusive Decision and Equitable Assessment. This tool is fantastic. It's reducing um, biases, helping make better decisions, assess talent in a fair way. And all of that because it was built with the power of AI on behavioral science, 
and with the help of you know several um, people coming all together uh, from different disciplines to make sure that a, you know annual performance review could be devised. So yes, I, I am 100% into the support of AI and how that will help the cause. You and I have mentioned the phrase implicit bias a few times throughout the show. Maybe none of our listeners know what that is. Would you mind giving a definition just so people know exactly what we're talking about? So there are many uh, definitions and here is mine. You know, the implicit bias is things that without you realizing help or hinder a decision. So for example, I have a very long last name. Every time I go to the airport, um, I will get stopped. Wanted or not, I will get stopped because my name do not fit into uh, <laughs> the airplane ticket. And so that's a bias that the algorithm pick up. If the name is so long and doesn't fit, we are not sure it's you. That's an implicit bias made into an algorithm that I am the one suffering on a regular basis at the airport. I'm laughing because, so my first name, the full name is Christopher. And I remember my first credit card, I guess my name was too long at the time. And so they chopped the R off. So I became Christoph. So everyone thought I was French or Italian or something. And so luckily I've had a very short last name. So I, but I understand uh, what you're going through. Once you have a diverse workforce, obviously bias is going to rise. How can companies create a culture that identifies and actively mitigate bias from bottom to top? Again, it's to talk about how we can make better decisions together, right, as a team, and what is the power in our differences to solve problems, to respond to our customer, and to deliver a product or services that we all set up of. You know, I think a team is always stronger when you talk to them about how can we create a collaboration, a culture where together we can work, and I can understand you, rather than having a conversation about biases. Again, equipping individuals to make better decisions and them being able to do better at their work, that's what they want. That's what individual wants. I've referenced your book a few times in our conversation. Who, for, who most needs to read your book? Is it human resources people, CEOs, everyone? And where can we find your book? <laughs> Everyone needs to read the book, uh, but there is not even a question. The book was written for, you know, leader, aspiring leader, manager, employee, HR, every organization, big, small, uh, listed, not listed, where they can found MIT website, but also one, and again, no promotion because I, I like to have all type of um, ability to buy it from Amazon to Bard and Nobles um, and also to your local bookstore. And if they don't, please email MIT and ask MIT to have a conversation with a local bookstore. And again, the title of the book is Diversity Dividend, The Transformational Power of Small Changes to De-Bias Your Company, Attract Diverse Talent, Manage Everyone Better, and Make More Money. I always have to give you the plug on that, Paula. That's what we're here for. <laughs> so we've been talking about workplace bias. How can companies measure the effectiveness of their efforts to remove bias? And what key performance indicators should they track? So here again, there is no one size fits all. Uh, but I will say, you know, the ability to 
measure how the team afterward perform in terms of time, in terms of quality, and in terms of collaboration. I think those three measures about the success of debiasing or improving their decision-making is key. Um, is there one size fit all? I will say again, it depends on the industry. Uh, and also depend on the region in which you are looking at. Uh, East Coast, West Coast, we don't measure in the same way. Um, and we have a tendency, I will say, to found a measure that may balance or not balance a team uh, to make the right decision. So having a consensus about those metrics is also very important. What training or educational programs do you recommend for employees and managers to raise awareness about bias and promote inclusive behaviors? So there is a substantial amount of work who have been carried by a number of uh, colleagues of mine. Um, and I'm thinking in particular, one by Frank Dobin, who is also at Harvard University, the chair of sociology, who have actually demonstrated that a lot of those trainings are actually counterproductive to uh, what one company will like to do. Uh, so is there a specific one that I will recommend? Unfortunately not, because science tell me uh, that this is not the case. One element that I have seen working very well is helping you know, organization via training and role play about what is entitled of their job and what is or what can they expect to do in their next job and creating um, a training about what is the best way for them to equip themselves in terms of decision, in terms of process, in terms of how they talk to individual to achieve that. That are, I will say, the most powerful training that I have seen, helping individual making better decision and remove the biases that they may have. Do you have a favorite or most illustrative case study or success story about a company that has successfully removed bias from its operations? Do I have a magic wand? <laughs> um, I will say that there is no one in particular. I do say that there are some war top contender that there is no uh, question over it. One that I'm thinking uh, and is, you know, on the top of my, man, my mind is Patagonia. Um, they are absolutely an amazing company at all level in terms of their process, the way in which uh, they handle employee and overall the mission and the purpose of how they communicate that to their employee for serving customer. They are among others. Uh, they are also big brand, uh, you know, who used to um, make big stride. Uh, we are not seeing them doing as much as they used to, uh, I should say, but there are a number of good companies and others have learned from them. You know, one that I'm also thinking of on the top of my head is Microsoft. The CEO um, have been bringing a new culture uh, in the last 10 years uh, that are striving for diversity internally at all levels. And what lessons can other organizations learn from them? A good leader spoke about it and have um, 
the ability to bring that conversation, not about diversity, but about a competitive advantage for the company and for everyone. That's where the key of the success is for any leader wanting to replicate what those leaders have done. And how should a company measure employee satisfaction and engagement, particularly among underrepresented groups, and are there notable trends in that respect? So I think, again, measuring everybody is very important and not just one group. I think that's uh, the key of success. I think where uh, a lot of our organization fell short is um, trying to measure once in a while. And um, generally speaking, I will say what is the best is to measure along the way on a regular basis and various topics. If I make an analogy here, you will understand right away why it's important. If you look at the stock market today, you will think, oh my God, this is a beautiful day. You look three weeks ago, you're crying uh, because you have just lost um, so many points. So depending on when you're looking at it, the perspective is not the same. But if you take a 10 years, wow, suddenly you have an 8% growth minimum. So the reason why I'm saying that, the ability to measure at different time, different type of question, also is important to know what your employer are going through and also understand that you are able to see the seasonal impact uh, of work, of you know, life event around those individuals and being able to make a better assessment to help them engage your workforce in the way in which you want them to be. You mentioned earlier Microsoft and Patagonia building a culture. We'd love to have those sponsors on the show, but what role does diversity play in attracting and retaining top talent, especially among underrepresented groups? You know, I think you cannot create an economy. Um, and I think if you look at the USPTO, which is a, the agency for patent and innovation, you realize that there is a big encouragement to create more diversity. Because if we want to be competitive on the world market, we need to make sure that we are providing the best solution to every program around the world. And what a beautiful country are we in. Look, uh, so many people with different backgrounds coming, bringing that wealth of knowledge and experience to be able to solve the toughest problem in this country. I think that's where the power is. The power of making sure that everybody bring what we have to bring when we came to this country first generation or, you know, the oldest one coming to the Mayflower, uh, all of them have something to provide into further building this economy. And what are other benefits that organizations can expect to experience from fostering diversity in their workforce? Happy people make more money for themselves and their company. I will remain with this mantra until I die. Um, you know, the ability to understand and be with friends from different perspectives uh, will always uh, make you happy to go to work, wanting to have a coffee, wanting to make sure that you're staying and you're finishing up the work you have to do so you can help um, your coworker if, if need be, or you can make sure that somebody cover your back if something happened. All of that matter tremendously. So happy people at work is important. And can you share a couple of examples of how diversity has positively influenced organizational performance, innovation, and competitiveness? 
Look around you. Look at the stock market. Uh, all of that is innovation. Uh, all of that is brought by people that you may not thought of. You know, one uh, one event that I'm currently uh, involved in is I'm sharing the committee for the UN on accessibility uh, and inclusion on the metaverse. There are so many things that, you know, for example, female engineers thought of because of their gender or people from a different, um, you know, ethnicity or different uh, experience have sought and are bringing to this new technology. That's where we're gonna create a future that will be more inclusive to everyone because everyone will found a solution um, to a problem that they may have encountered. Maybe as a follow-up to that, how do diverse perspectives and backgrounds lead to more creative problem solving and decision-making within teams and organizations? So, you know, there are several re research and one of them is um, by one, by someone that I deeply respect, um, which is Amy Edmondson, who is on the cover of my book, who uh, just um, published the right kind of wrong and who has na been named top thinker in the world. You know, one element is we need to fail to make sure that we will be successful. And uh, you need to fail with different perspective because the more diversity you will bring into your thought, the more successful you will be in providing an outcome that is responding to the right question. So I think there is a lot of, of success in the failure. That's one element. But another element that Amy work has been uh, laying down is the psychology safety of a team. And, you know, there are several experiments, and one of them who is one of the most famous is at Google. Uh, they're trying to assimilate what was making the best team. And what they found is the diversity of individuals who are feeling safe to fail together. That's where the recipe is. And you wouldn't think of people being happy to fail together at a place like Google. <laughs> Some of them were even paid to fail. <laughs> How great it is. You have to break it first to see if it really works. <laughs> Paula, on the other side of that coin, dramatically different backgrounds, perspectives, opinions, and cultural styles have been known to create friction and contentious relationships. How do we make sure that DEI efforts don't create such problems? And I think that's a fair point. Uh, I think the DNI is a point of, uh, especially nowadays, of a conversation that may lead to friction at work, but also at home. And so being able to, I will say, have a different of perspective over where the other person is coming from is essential. Being able to hear the argument, even if you do not agree, that's where the building of a culture of somebody else having a different opinion will help create and foster inclusivity and diversity in our world. And it's no secret that older employees often have the most difficulty adjusting to changes in the workplace. What challenges or barriers might organizations face with older workers when striving to create a more diverse workforce and how can leaders effectively address them? You know, having the ability to um, uh, again, there is no one size fits all, but the ability to uh, bring to the conversation uh, what employees feel and how they feel and what do they think are the solution and that they can build that solution together is quintessential. 
you know, one element that works very well is in the pro bono world, the ability for a company to bring employees together to do something who is not benefiting them, but benefiting others, help them to understand that together they can achieve something bigger. And, you know, I like to say that team overall is an acronym for together everyone achieve more. And that's where um, the notion of diversity and maybe pro bono, helping others um, bring a team together. Together? Uh, uh, what's the team acronym again? <laughs> together, everyone achieve more. I've never heard that. This is a show first, which we pride us on. And so I love that. I'm going to use that from now on. So thank you. <laughs> So you see, sometimes the Patriot team may bring things uh, novel to the we'll, show. We'll put that aside. Every now and then they add some value. In what ways is inclusivity, excuse me, inclusivity different from diversity? Well, if we make an analogy, everybody can come to the party. Now, who come and be invited uh, to dance and to make sure that everybody is honing the mic and have the moment of spotlight that's a different story. So that's where the difference exists between inclusivity and diversity. Making sure that everybody is brought in, but also have the ability to be um, on the spotlight together. We were talking earlier about the impact of COVID. Have you observed any trends or best practices in promoting inclusivity in remote or distributed work environments? Yeah, one, one that I will say works extremely well uh, across sector is the ability to have blind coffee date online with co-worker from other, um, uh, uh, other part, other department. Because you may not know them, but just having 15 minutes encounter of a tea or a coffee and recreate what you have in the office where randomly you were stumbling onto people uh, is a system that I have seen during COVID and that we have implemented during COVID. And then now we are implementing uh, with the use uh, of virtual uh, world works extremely well. Let's talk about leadership and your research into empathy and emotional intelligence. How does empathy differ from sympathy and why is it important for leaders to cultivate empathy? Um, you're asking me tough question. I'm going back to school today. <laughs> you're a Patriots fan. <laughs> um, you know, the difference between empathy and sympathy is, I think on the definition level, they are different, right? One is I can really relate to what you are telling me. And the other one is I can relate and I can feel and I can put myself into your shoes. And that makes a difference in how able I am to understand how the situation may affect you without me feeling sorry for you, right? Just being able to absorb that feeling. And that's where the difference are. And what are the key components of emotional intelligence and how they contribute to effective leadership? So first, emotional intelligence was a beautiful uh, term coined uh, by a colleague of us, um, Daniel Goleman, right? Uh, and so he came with the premises that there are several characteristics. One is self-awareness. The other one is self-regulation. The other one is motivation and empathy paired with social skill, 
that create uh, emotional intelligence. And without that, you are unable to understand where other people come from. And what is great about emotional intelligence, it is a skill that can be learned. Everything can be learned. So that's, you are not born with it, you can learn it. Paula, we have just a few minutes left, and I always like to have our guests take us to the end of our conversation with advice or a personal story that helps our audience become less stressed, more resilient, and more empowered. I'm turning the mic over to you and have you take it from here. Um, thank you first for having me. Uh, that's number one. Number two, I will advise everyone if, um, you know, one colleague of mine at Stanford is Umberman uh, Lab, who is providing beautiful back, back by science advice for anyone uh, to make, uh, I will say, better uh, life for themselves, informed by science. So I will advise to follow that. The second thing that I will, uh, you know, advise individual to do to be more happy at work is defining their goal. What do they want of the employer that they're working with? What are their expectations? What can they change or what they cannot change and within their control and letting go if it's not the right employer. Uh, you don't have to be working for an employer that every day you are fear of. When you're going to work, you should be happy. That's where we spend most of our life. And I will say next to that, the ability to balance working out. Um, make, and when I say working out, is even the ability to take a break, to walk out of the desk in which you are in, and the ability to say thank you to the people who are around you forming your team. Or I will say the essential way of making happy people. Dr. Paolo Cecchi de Meglio, even though you're a Boston fan, thank you so much for being here today. It was a real <laughs> pleasure and honor, and I appreciate your, your good naturedness on this, so thank you. Thank you so much for having me, but I love New York as well. All right, we'll send you a coffee mug to Harvard, I promise, we'll put them in the mail. <laughs> and thank you to our audience, which now includes people in over 50 countries, for joining us for another episode of Next Steps Forward. I'm Chris Meek. For more details and upcoming shows and guests, please follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Chris Meek Public Figure and on X at chrismeek underscore USA. We'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place, with another leader from the world of business, politics, public policy, sports, or entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.